This is Jeremiah chapter 20. The prophet writes, O Lord, you have enticed me, and I was enticed. You have overpowered me, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I must cry out. I must shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, then within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is all around. Denounce him, let us denounce him. All my close friends are watching for me to stumble. Perhaps he can be enticed, and we can prevail against him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a dread warrior, and therefore my persecutors will stumble, and they will not prevail. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, you test the righteous. You see the heart and the mind. Let me see your retribution upon them. For to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. For he has delivered the life of the needy from the hands of evildoers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Um, in, our, in our time of praying, I was just aware, even while we were uh, reading this, the gospel, um, you know, that I think for me, even sometimes in preparing to preach, and maybe for many of us in preparing to come to church, um, you know, you can find yourself thinking about, you know, for many of us, a primary feeling with God can be that we know we should be doing things that we're not doing, and that we feel either kind of sad or sorry or guilty or whatever about the things that we're not doing, that we wish that we were doing. And um, and just want to say to you that both in preparing before coming here this morning and then reminded of it, I think maybe again just by the Lord and reading the gospel, and then certainly in reading the words of Jeremiah, that for those of you who are here and your weariness is of a different sort, um, may primarily you're weary because you have been doing exactly what the Lord's called you to do. Um, you're weary because you have been being faithful. Um, you're weary because you, like Jeremiah, have chosen to walk in ways that those around you have not chosen to walk. And you're feeling the weight of that, the sadness of it, the grief of it. Um, I just want to say, with like everything in my bones, I believe that the Lord um, has something to say directly and specifically to you this morning. It's not that you know, church won't happen for the rest of us. Um, but I hope what you hear in the words of the gospel, um, I hope you can hear the Lord say over you this morning, you are worth more than many sparrows, and the hairs of your head, they are all counted. And the grief that you feel and the burden that you feel is not lost on the Lord. For those of you who feel weary and doing good, um, the Lord is with you and for you. And, you know, for the rest of us who have a weariness of a different sort, not that you haven't done any good, but you know what I'm saying. The Lord is for us as well. Um, so can we pray, particularly for our brothers and sisters, maybe who are just weary with the kind of weariness that Jesus felt? Um, to you, Lord, we offer ourselves and our lives. And, Lord, for my brothers and sisters who've come this morning and they have 
had to drag their hearts into a place like this and put them again before you and choose to trust you, not because of their lack of faithfulness, Lord, but precisely because of their faithfulness. Over them, Jesus, I pray that you would speak a word of peace, that you would speak a word of healing and renewal, that your spirit would be with them and for them this morning, that you would be tender and gentle towards all of us, God. But for those, Lord, who have partnered with you in faithfulness, God, I pray that you would give them strength, that they would take up these words of Jeremiah as their own words, Jesus. Be here with us, Lord. Say what you would have us to hear. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. It is so good to be with you all this morning. Welcome to church. Uh, it's a beautiful day in northwest Arkansas and hot and uh, already, and we are well into summer. And for those of you who have been around here at Christ the King, you know that we've uh, chosen to spend what is for us in the liturgical calendar anyway, um, what's known as ordinary time, our great green growing season, that we're spending these weeks of June and July um, with the prophets in the Old Testament. And so we've read the words of Hosea last week. We look at, looked um, at the words of Moses, and uh, today we're going to be with our brother uh, Jeremiah. Just a quick word of reminder that in part, um, the reason we're with the prophets is because it's the job of the prophet uh, to remind us that um, it's only when we are aligned to God's will, to his heart, to who he is and his vision for us and for the world, uh, that we can bear the kind of fruit that we're meant to bear, that we can grow like we're meant to grow. And so for all of our hopes and prayers for growth, and that is my hope, as a person who's been walking with Jesus for a long time, I am not a finished product. I have much to learn, much to see, much to grow, much growth to expect. And yet I'm reminded in spending this time with the prophets that if I would like to grow and bear fruit, as we say, in the way of keeping of Jesus and Jesus after Jesus' heart, that um, I have to align myself to who he is, um, that there's a particular kind of fruit that we're after in this great green growing season. And that's the kind that looks, smells like, tastes like, feels like Jesus. And so we're with the prophets so that we can like just check ourselves. Um, are we out of alignment somewhere? As God holds forth his vision for who he is and who he has called us to be and what he hopes for the world, like where are we in relation to that vision so that we can be reconciled, realigned, and bear fruit accordingly? That's the hope. Uh, so here we go, uh, time with uh, Jeremiah. I want to talk about Jeremiah's situation for a little bit, who he is and where he found himself so that I can hopefully uh, connect the dots better to maybe uh, where you are and what's going on in your life because on the surface of it, if you read the words of Jeremiah, um, and in many respects, Jeremiah's life was, let's just say it, nothing like your life. <laughs> it was very different in almost every respect from my own included. Um, and I'm a professional Christian, and still, um, he, uh, he, was, he had a very unique calling. And yet some of what he felt and what he was going through, uh, applicable to us all. Jeremiah is um, known by reputation as the prophet of lament. He's the so-called weeping prophet. You can hear it in the verses that we read. Um, Jeremiah's not where you go for a pick-me-up, in other words, <laughs> if you're needing just to like feel better about, you know, have you ever done that where you're like, um, oh, I'm going to go to the Bible and maybe just God and I'll just flip and turn. If you, 
If you find yourself just opening to Jeremiah, I'd keep flipping if I was you. (laughs) There are a few parts in there that feel uh, really good and hopeful, but for the most part, um, he had a heavy thing that he was tasked to do. There are seven prayers of lament that he has to pray. We read one of them throughout the book. The reason that he's known um, as the weeping prophet and that he, um, his word was so heavy is because it was Jeremiah's job to announce the coming of the exile. That is not an uplifting word to have to preach to people. Um, that was, in fact, um, his calling, was to be the one that was going to prepare God's people for the coming of exile. And so it'd be one thing if his job was like Jonah's, for example, to get to go, and he had to be the one to preach repentance, you know, if he could be the guy that was called to go and announce to Israel that the exile was potentially coming, but there was still time if they would repent and get it all together, then, you know, he could be the guy that was a hero because he was the guy that spared them from the exile. You know, that would be a reputation I'd sign up for. Yeah, it'd be hard. You have to get people on board. But if you could get people on board, then you could be the hero because you saved saved us from Babylon. But what God tells Jeremiah in the beginning is, no, Um, here's the thing. You do have to call them to repent, but regardless, the exile is coming. It's coming one way or another. Babylon is coming, and that's your job, to go and tell them so. And that was a non-popular message to have to preach, not surprisingly. Jeremiah came of age during the reign of King Josiah. I don't know how much of um, if that name means anything to you, but he's the boy king, and he became a beloved king after a long string of um, not beloved kings in Judah. He became the favorite, in large part because of this kind of uh, providential moment in Josiah's life. Uh, he was sitting on the throne one day, that's how I imagine it happening, and one of the priests of the temple was uh, digging around back in one of the uh, storage closets that apparently didn't get cleaned out very often. And while cleaning out the storage closet, comes across a scroll that um, to you and I would become um, the book of Deuteronomy. So they find this old forgotten scroll in the back in a storage closet in a temple somewhere, and a priest comes, and he brings it to Josiah, and he's like, look what I found. I think this is pretty important stuff. And so Josiah asks for the priest to read the scroll. And in its hearing, while it's being read, um, he's overcome by the Lord, uh, falls to his knees, rends his garments, and repents. And he calls all of Judah to hold a national repentance. He issues a statewide reform, in other words, which was much needed, by the way. So Josiah's reform is heeded in large part. So it becomes this like, what wholesale effort to reform according to what would we know as the book of Deuteronomy. And so people take the reform up at least in part. Um, Josiah was very sincere in his calls for reform and in his own repentance. But here's what happens. Josiah's very sincere calls for repentance and his very sincere desires for reform get co-opted by politicians who see an opportunity which is that, so in the historical context, the big empire of Assyria is crumbling. Assyria has been the boss on the scene for a long time, and now it's falling apart. And so nation states, small ones like Judah, see an opportunity to rise to the occasion, to declare some independence from Assyria, to pull themselves together nationally and politically. Power, in other words. 
And so what the politicians do is they take hold of Josiah's call for reform and use it as an opportunity to call people to nationalism, to love of country. And they do that by promising that if Judah will be sincere about reform, if they'll go to temple, if they'll pray right, do all the right things, they'll get their act together, then God will bless them and make them a prosperous country. Great again, perhaps. And so this sounds really good to everybody because the truth was the truth. They needed reform. It was real. And so those who were very sincere in their calls for reform and the knowledge that they needed it could very sincerely be like, yes, we need this reform. And those who cared actually very little about reform or God's vision and God's purposes could attach themselves to the same thing. There ain't nothing new under the sun, y'all. Nationalism has been around for a very, very long time, and people taking advantage of very sincere needs for religious reform and tethering them to the need for political agendas or the desire to push forward a political agenda is as old as time. And I suspect that one of the reasons that we have so many voices from the prophets, people like Jeremiah, who, other words, were like kind of these minor fringe voices, really, that the reason that the Holy Spirit made sure that Jeremiah's voice and Amos's voice and Hosea's voice, that their voices made it into your Bible and into the canon was so that we did not forget. God has a vision for his people. And that is real and true. And how politicians use it and co-opt it and even corrupt it is another thing altogether. And so the facts were, Judah was going into exile. That's what was going to happen. And God needed a prophet who was brave enough to stand up and say so. I am making no, by the way, prophetic announcements about the future of our country. I suspect we're a long way from at least political exile. It is, though, interesting to me I find myself as I read Jeremiah like what made him, particularly in light of what we've been talking about, how was he able to hear something different? What made him a kind of differentiated person and follower of God enough to be able to look out at that landscape and hear the word of God saying something so different and to find the courage to live into it? What grace, what a gift, but of course it didn't feel that way to him. Jeremiah's word made him terribly, terribly unpopular. <laughs> they gave him a nickname. His nickname was Terror All Around. Um, in other words, that's a worse version of Debbie Downer. <laughs> um, he was the Debbie Downer, capital D, capital D. Terror All Around. When they saw him coming, they mocked him. Oh, here comes Jeremiah. Here's the one again to tell us that everything's going to go wrong. Meanwhile, the temple prophets, those who were employed by the state, guess what was happening to them? Big crowds. 
popular. Peace and prosperity is a popular message. It's easy to believe because we want it to be true, and rightly so. The reason we want peace and prosperity to be true for us is because it's also, I believe, what God wants for you. A certain kind of prosperity, a certain kind of peace, a particular kind of peace, a particular kind of prosperity. Remember, we said this at the beginning when we started in Ordinary Time. The reason we read Genesis is because Genesis lays out for us God's vision for the whole world and God's vocation for humans. So our blessing is connected to blessing for all people. My flourishing is connected to your flourishing. That's the vision that God lays out in Genesis. So yes, peace, yes, prosperity, but of a certain kind. For God, peace and prosperity, in other words, cannot be real apart from real reconciliation with him. The priests and the prophets all cry out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. God says to Jeremiah, how can there be peace when there is no reconciliation? How can there be peace when there is no truth? How can there be real prosperity if it's coming at everyone else's expense? There can be no peace or prosperity apart from real reconciliation, and that's because that's how love works. And any of you who've ever been in a position to feel yourself sinned against already know that. If you have ever been the one to be betrayed, to be abandoned, then you know something of what it feels like to feel a kind of hurt for which there is no balm there is no medicine, there is no healing apart from the person who has hurt you acknowledging what they've done. I know this from my own life. You can get on, you can choose to forget it, you can move away from it, but all of that ultimately is something altogether different than real peace or real healing. And here's what I love about the Lord, is that what he is asking for, it sounds so heavy to read it in Romans or in Jeremiah, you know, all this talk of sin and calling people to repent and, you know, acknowledging what, all of that can feel so heavy-handed. But if you put yourself in the Lord's position, I think really what he was saying to Israel is, hey, listen, I actually love you, though. I really love you. And love will insist on what's true and right and good and will settle ultimately for nothing less than that. So if we want peace, let's have peace. Let's just have the real kind. If we want blessing and prosperity, let's have it. Let's just have the real kind. This is what the Lord says in Jeremiah 7. He says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. 
Jesus will take up this same phrase from Jeremiah. Do you remember in the scene the one time when Jesus like really kind of loses it? Or so we think. Um, I've heard this said all my life. You know, Jesus got angry too. You remember that time he turned over tables? So if you ever just like really lose it and flip a couch or something, you know, <laughs> Jesus did it too. I'm entitled. Um, that may be true. I don't know how he feels about you flipping your sofa and whatever. But here's what's happening in that scene in the temple. Um, Jesus was living in the way of the prophet, in the way of Jeremiah. When he made the whip, do you remember? He very, just put yourself in the temple, by the way. Jesus made a whip <laughs> in front of people. He took time to braid it together. Not, this is not a person enraged with, I don't know about you, but I have, when I am really angry enough to like flip a couch or a table or something, my first thought isn't, you know what I'm going to do? A really tedious task like braiding leather. <laughs> and then at the end of that, I'll get all really worked up again. <laughs> no, you want the whip already made, see, when you're enraged. No, that's not what's happening Jesus was doing what's called a sign act, a prophetic sign act, in the way of Jeremiah and like others before him. He was doing a demonstration, in other words. If you want to know how God feels about what's happening currently, not just in this place because you're selling some pigeons, but because this temple has become representative of something that is contrary to God's heart. If you want to know how God feels, let me show you. And he braids the whip, and then he flips over tables. And he pronounces judgment on the temple system. And he did that because he had forebears before him like Jeremiah. Jeremiah also was called and tasked to do synax. Wild stuff. Jeremiah had to make his own yoke of iron and wear it like this. A yoke is a, a bar of iron that stretches across your sh shoulders and then would have places for your hands. And he wore that around town. So, city square, imagine you're in Bentonville, you know, getting your Walmart ice cream and hanging out on the flowers, go get your coffee, and here comes old terror all around <laughs> with his iron yoke, weeping as he goes, announcing exile. Irritating. That would be hard to look at. Did not make him a lot of friends. Why was he doing it? To make people feel bad? To say this is what's going to happen to you? In part, but it was also a way to say, look, God is yoked to you. This love that he feels for you, the need to call for repentance, to insist on truth and goodness in your life is to him at times not a joy, but like a yoke of iron to which he is bound. God is bound to you, Israel. He is bound to you, Judah. He is bound to you, church. His heart is for you and with you. And there are certain moments when he needs you to hear that that has not just cost you, but also cost him. He's not indifferent to your life. And he's not here, and so lucky people like Jeremiah got to help us see. There was another time in which Jeremiah was tasked to go by one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible. Um, he is tasked to go by fancy underwear, linen underpants, very white. And God says, I want you to go buy these very fancy underwear that are very expensive. Spend all your money, 
Jeremiah on the underwear. And so Jeremiah does, without explanation. He goes and buys the underwear. And then God says, wear them. Jeremiah, I want you to wear the underwear. And so he does. He wears them. What a life, right? He's wearing the underwear. And then God says, now, Jeremiah, I want you to take them off, and I want you to go bury them in the mud. Leave them there for three days, and then go dig them up. What a weird and useless thing to do, it would seem. But I wonder if, in part, what God was trying to get Jeremiah to feel was how it feels to purchase something that you love very much, something that's intimate to you, a kind of love, arguably, that nobody else can see, a kind of intimacy that nobody else really knows, to hold it, to keep it close to you, and then to watch it be soiled and ruined, what it feels like to have it discarded and taken from you. In other words, he was trying to help Jeremiah and all of Jeremiah's listeners to have some sense of how it would feel for God to lose Israel, to lose the people he loved. Not just into exile, but to lose real peace and to lose real prosperity. His vision of it. There's a book um, that I love so much. Uh, called Run with the Horses, written by Eugene Peterson. He is a master at taking prophets like Jeremiah and the book and making it accessible, um, helping us to hear it. I'm going to read you um, a portion of, of what he says. He says, There's nothing wrong with success, and there's nothing wrong with applause. It's not evidence of a sellout when a preacher has a crowd of people before him or her. And it's not proof of superficiality when a church is full. Nor, to take the other side, is it a sign of integrity that a man is persecuted and run out of town for what he says. In other words, just because people don't like you, it's not because you're a prophet. It could just be that you're annoying. He says, in fact, that person may be a dangerous fraud. Nor can poverty be claimed as a proof of courageous authenticity. That person may simply be incompetent, bad with money. <laughs> They're not poor because they're a prophet. They're just bad with money. What is wrong is to evaluate the worth of words and deeds by their popularity. What is scandalous is to approve only what is applauded. What is disastrous is to assume that only the celebrated is genuine. There are times when the truth will receive a wide hearing and times when it will not. Jesus had a congregation of 5,000 one day and four women and two bored soldiers with him the next. And his message was the same both days. We must learn to live by the truth, not by our feelings, not by the world's opinion. We are trained to listen to the word of God, to test everything against what God reveals to us in Christ, and to discover all meaning and worth by examining life in relation to him. Amen. Some of us have to work really hard to believe that God is not just sort of perpetually disappointed in you, in me. You know, you get up in the morning and you go to read your Bible and you have to fight the primary feeling being like, you know, one of shouldness and oughtness and obligation and like God is going to be disappointed in you or mad at you if you don't. 
And I guess for all the heavy-handedness for the prophets, the good news that I'm reminded of in Jeremiah is that, like, actually, I don't think if God's primary feeling about me was just hoping that I would keep it between the lines, you know, like a boss towards an employee, or if he really only wanted out of me a good life and obligatory obedience, if that's really all he wanted, I'm sorry, but some of this just wouldn't have been worth it. The cross wouldn't have been worth that. There's no reason for Jeremiah to buy the underwear and bury it in the creek and go walking around with a yoke of iron if really God is just looking for us to all fall in line and be dutiful and obedient. I actually think that the reason that Jeremiah was worth it and that Jesus who would come after him, who similarly would have his own arms stretched out like Jeremiah's, would have his own loincloth taken away from him and his humility and vulnerability before the world. That God primary feeling towards you is not one of disappointment. His primary feeling towards you is love. He loves you, and love requires something of you. The best kind always will. It is not wrong for us to require things of one another. It is not wrong. It is, in fact, my job not my pay job, my responsibility, my vocation as a human person and as a priest to look you in the face and say love requires something of you. Just because it feel good, feels good doesn't make it right. Just because you want it doesn't mean you get to have it. If we're going to be people who would be courageous enough and brave enough to love that way, then our lives must be marked by the kind of compassion and sincerity and integrity that people need to see in us to hear that. An angry parent who goes around just screaming and yelling and disciplining all the time has a harder time convincing the child that all of that is motivated by love. Do you know what I'm saying? But when a parent who actually loves you occasionally flips the table to get you to hear and see, you are loved, and it is because I love you that I'm requiring this of you. I cannot settle for less than you were created and called to be. That's true of who he is. For those of you who, when we started this time, feel weary with this call to walk in faithfulness, you need to know that this God who has called you to give so much and do so much and walk in the way of love, the reason that we need Synax is so we have something in our imagination. I can imagine that same God, not with a javelin in his hand, bending over the bench looking at me, but I can imagine that same God with his arms stretched out on a cross, bleeding and holding pain on my behalf. Here's what I love imagining. Jeremiah getting to watch the crucifixion of Jesus Not because I think Jeremiah delighted in seeing it. I don't think he did at all. But I do think that when he looked at a crucified Jesus, he was able to look at him and say, now he gets it. All that pain that I felt, he's felt. All that love and that hurt and that disappointment and betrayal, he's felt. He gets it. He's with me. And he is. He gets it and he's with you. And whatever you're carrying and however hard it is, 
He's with you and he's for you. Like a fire in his bones. Help us to hear it, Lord Jesus. Help us to receive it, Holy Spirit, from you. Take your words, Lord, and drive them deep into us, Lord, in the parts and places of us, God, where we need to hear it, where we need to be reminded of what's true, that you love us, that you are for us and with us, and also, God, that you've called us to something. Help us hear you, Lord. And choose to walk with you. In your name we pray. Amen.